This week, Celsius Networks files Chapter 11, Endo International and Vision Healthcare lenders sign NDAs, Judge Isker pushes Talon to disclose intentions regarding coal strip coal fire plant, Bed Bath & Beyond reports margin pressures caused by supply chain issues. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield to stress out and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Bullon will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's deep dive, we offer a replay of a June webinar where Head of Reorg Covenants Peter Washkowitz and distressed debt analyst Simran Ball provide an overview of the significant headwinds in front of financial retail technology company Diebold Nixdorf as it faces a massive maturity wall in the next two to three years and walks the company's options and capacities under its debt documents. It's Friday, July 15th. Hoboken, New Jersey-based cryptocurrency finance platform and lender Celsius Network filed for Chapter 11 protection this week, seeking to stabilize its business and consummate a comprehensive restructuring transaction. Debtors filed without an RSA and, according to a press release, intend to fund post-position operations using over $100 million of cash on hand, which the debtors say will provide ample liquidity to support certain operations during the restructuring process. The company explained in its press release that it paused customer account withdrawals on June 12th because without a pause, an acceleration of withdrawals would have allowed certain customers, those who were first to act, to be paid in full while leaving others behind to wait for Celsius to harvest value from illiquid or longer-term asset deployment activities before they receive a recovery. According to the press release that accompanied the filing, the company is not requesting authority to allow customer withdrawals at this time. Celsius maintains that under its user agreements, assets deposited by customers are its property and not customer property. The first day declaration of CEO and co-founder Alex Mashinsky says the Chapter 11 filing will allow it to emerge from Chapter 11 positioned for success in the cryptocurrency industry. Mashinsky says that as a result of the company's asset preservation strategies, it holds approximately $4.3 billion in assets and $780 million in non-user liabilities as the petition date. Mashinsky said that the amount of digital assets on the company's platform grew faster than the company was prepared to deploy, which caused Celsius to make what in hindsight have proved to be poor asset deployment decisions, some of which Mashinsky says took time to unwind and have left the company with the disproportional liabilities when measured against unprecedented market declines. According to Mashinsky's declaration, this resulted in the company holding an uncollateralized claim against Slender in the amount of about $509 million after setting off its own loan obligations. The first day hearing is scheduled for Monday, July 18th. Holders of Endo International's first lien debt are signing non-disclosure agreements as the company seeks to deal with holders at the top of the cap stack ahead of a Chapter 11 filing, according to sources. A filing could come before the end of the month as Endo reaches the end of a 30-day grace period associated with its announcement on June 30th that it would not make the $38 million interest payment on its 6% senior unsecured notes due 2028. Large holders of the company's first lien debt include Silverpoint, according to sources. Opioid claimants, whose claims are unsecured, have reached out to holders across the capital stack, according to sources, who added that discussions between opioid claimants and debt holders are still in preliminary stages. Some sources suggest that the company may disclose a negative EBITDA outlook and cleansing documents. This would enable owners of the first lien debt to argue that their debt is impaired. Others suggest that industry-level data indicates that the company could beat its second quarter guidance. The company is unlikely to seek dip financing in a Chapter 11, according to sources, given that it has $1.4 billion of cash. Instead, it will likely seek a cash collateral order. Given the competitive dynamic between the first and second lien lenders, there could be a prolonged confirmation battle in court focused on issues of valuation. The company also announced on Friday that it is skipping $1.9 million of interest payments on two series of notes. At Tuesday's continued hearing in the lift stay motion of co-owners of debtor Talon Montana's Callstrip Montana coal-fired facility, Judge Marvin Isger gave the Talon debtors until August 11th to file a Chapter 11 plan that contains a reasonable proposal with respect to whether the plant will close or remain operational past 2025. Judge Isger continued the hearing on the lift stay motion to August 15th when the court will consider the movement's request to lift the stay to allow litigation and arbitration to proceed over whether unanimous consent from all co-owners is needed to shut down the remaining Callstrip operating units 3 and 4. Judge Isger called his conditional ruling a shot over the debtor's bow, saying that the proposal better be reasonable and sufficiently detailed because Colstrip's non-talent co-owners, a group of Pacific Northwest Utilities, or PNW Utilities, and Montana Utility Northwestern Corp. need the ability to plan for the plant's future. Debtors' counsel Jessica Louisville-Goschel told the court that as of now, the debtors intend to file a Chapter 11 plan within the next couple of weeks, with a confirmation hearing anticipated for mid-October. Debtors' milestone for filing the plan under the RSA is August 7th. 
Judge Isger added that the debtor's proposal must also address how future costs would be borne by the co-owners in the event of either continued operation or closure. He emphasized the proposal's cost component need not be perfect or precise, but should be reasonably detailed to allow the court and the parties to evaluate the proposal's feasibility. The PNW utilities wish to shut down the units by the end of 2025 in response to Washington, Oregon regulations that would force them to phase out coal-fired generation from their portfolios as early as the end of 2025. Talon, Montana, and Northwestern want to keep operating the plant longer. However, Northwestern is aligned with the PNW utilities on the stay request, asserting that it needs a final resolution of the dispute over voting rights in order to plan for alternative power sources if coal strip is to be closed. During oral argument, the judge indicated that debtors' coal strip proposal should provide co-owners the option to exit their ownership interests in the plant. Due to continued margin pressures caused by supply chain issues and working capital uses, particularly inventory, Bed Bath & Beyond could continue to burn cash in the near term, according to an analysis by Reorg. The company said it expects some of these pressures to subside in the near term, including reduced port fees and for inventory to be a source of cash in the fourth quarter. However, as is the case with other financially strapped retailers, vendor relationships could become a concern as the company continues to stretch payables in order to conserve cash. The company has retained Berkeley Research Group, or BRG, a retail advisory firm, to focus on cash, inventory, and balance sheet optimization. The global supply chain disruption has increased fees related to ports, warehouses, freight, and shipping, resulting in shrinking profit margins. Reorg's analysis indicates that supply chain-related costs as a percentage of costs of goods sold have been increasing, with margin changes implying a 14.6% increase to cost of goods sold in the first quarter, compared with a 12.1% decrease a year ago. Inventory has also continued to be an issue for Bed Bath & Beyond, which is taking longer on average to convert its inventory into cash. As of the end of the first quarter, Reorg has calculated inventory days outstanding of about 143 days, up from about 108 days as of the end of the prior year period. To offset these cash pressures, however, Bed Bath appears to be extending the time it takes to pay back vendors and suppliers, as measured by days outstanding. As of the end of the first quarter, accounts payables days outstanding was about 67 days, up from about 61 days as of the end of the prior year period. Liquidity could also become an issue for Bed Bath & Beyond if it continues to burn cash and if vendors or suppliers demand to be paid earlier. Reorg calculates that the company burned about $488 million of cash in the first quarter, or about $607 million on an LTM basis. As of first quarter ended May 28th, Bed Bath & Beyond had about $107 million of unrestricted cash and cash equivalents and approximately $700 million of ABL availability. Bed Bath & Beyond disclosed $200 million of ABL drawings during the quarter, and another $200 million of drawings after quarter end, the proceeds of which the company has said may be used for working capital and other general corporate purposes. Top Red Stories this week included, America's Covenants releases U.S. Loan Terms Database, surprising number of credit agreements provide illusory MFM protection, size of incremental free and clear basket could signal scale of borrower flexibility. DBSI says $725 million Sun Edison 2L suit barred by non-reliance clause, Champerty Doctrine. Suggested application of California rather than New York law could harm leveraged loan market. District Court remands FERC regulated contract rejection decision on Gulfport case, directs bankruptcy court to calculate rejection damages in line with Ultra Morant. Loan scene argues Medley Management trying to shift blame for Medley LLC liquidation from itself to firm in motion to dismiss malpractice suit. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Tall, and the week ahead is a busy week with a number of court events. On Monday, July 18th, the Celsius Network debtors will be in court for a first-day hearing in their Freefall Chapter 11 cases. The cryptocurrency finance platform and lender filed bankruptcy to stabilize their business and seek a comprehensive restructuring that may involve asset sales or third-party investments. That same day, the GWG Holdings debtors will ask for approval of replacement debt financing to be provided by Chapford SMA Partnerships and for the appointment of two new independent directors and a CRO. The official committee of bondholders has voiced concerns with the dip's alternate stocking horse fee of $18.3 million, among other sale-related terms. Tuesday, July 19th, will mark the beginning of a multi-day exclusivity trial in Ruby Pipeline. The debtors, with the support of equity sponsors Kinder Morgan and Pembina Pipeline, are seeking a six-month exclusivity extension, while the UCC, along with the ad hoc note holders group, are urging the court to end the stalemate in the cases by denying the extension and otherwise terminating the debtors' exclusivity. The ad hoc group stands ready to propose a competing plan that it says would satisfy all third-party claims and include a sale process to maximize value. 
Also slated for Tuesday, July 19th, is Twitter's request to expedite proceedings in its recently filed suit against Elon Musk to close his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter. The company is seeking a four-day trial in mid-September before an October 24th termination date. Also on Tuesday are disclosure statement hearings in PWM property management and all-year holdings. The PWM debtors' plan contemplates the sale of their Park Avenue property to former property manager S.L. Green as stocking horse bidder and seeks a confirmation date by the end of August. The all-year holdings plan with exit transaction counterparty Paragraph Partners is opposed by the debtors' co-owner of the William Vale property, who has filed a suit to contest the debtor's sale of his interest of the hotel to Paragraph. On Thursday, July 21st, the Ladam Airlines debtors will ask Judge James Garrity to approve their settlement with Columbus Hill Capital Management. The agreement resolves Columbus Hill's disputes with the enforceability of the confirmed plan and provides for Columbus Hill's cooperation with consummation of the plan in the United States and Chile. In exchange, the debtors will pay up to $1.7 million of Columbus Hill's advisors' fees and costs, among other terms. The Revlon debtors' second-day hearing is scheduled for Friday, July 22nd. The debtors will ask for final approval of debt financing from Brandco and ABL lenders in the form of a $400 million ABL facility and a $575 million term loan facility with an incremental uncommitted $450 million facility. To date, only the pre-petition agent for the debtors' $50 million ABL tranche B first-in, last-out term loans filed a limited objection, seeking additional adequate protection, but otherwise not posing final dip relief. As for earnings, they will be reported on Tuesday, July 19th by Netflix and Wednesday, July 20th by Martin Midstream. That's it for me on this Friday, July 15th from Los Angeles. Wishing you all a great weekend. Now back to you in New York. And next up, for this week's Deep Dive, we offer a replay of a June webinar where Head of Rear Covenants Peter Washkowitz and Distressed Debt Analyst Simran Ball provide an overview of the significant headwinds in front of financial and retail technology company Diebold Nixdorf as it faces a massive maturity wall in the next two to three years and a walk through the company's options and capacities under its debt documents. Good afternoon. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research. Just three months ago, Diebold's debt was trading near par and the company was anticipating refinancing its credit facility later this year. Fast forward to now, and secured notes are in the 70s and unsecured notes in the 50s. Discussions have changed to a complete capital structure overhaul. Hinting at what was to come in March, when debt was still trading near par, the company sought more room under its credit facility leverage covering to provide, quote, flexibility for the normalization of working capital and the management of longer lead times in the global supply chain clearly a, a problem that many companies are facing. However, a sharp, a sharp drop in demand and lower margins leading to cash burn and a maturity wall beginning next year, continuing into 2025, lends itself to a larger capital structure fix. Complicating discussions are multiple parties with competing interests. Simran Bal, corporate credit analyst at Reorg, will show that although the credit facility and secured notes are seemingly parry, relative ranking on certain assets and entities favor the credit facility. Additionally, the credit facility is the first chunk of debt to mature in, in Diebold's capital structure. The secured notes are the last to mature, even behind 400 million of unsecured notes. Peter Washkowitz, head of Covenants, explains why the company likely needs more than just existing liquidity to address its capital structure. Additionally, limitations make it difficult for the company to negotiate with one tranche of secured debt and not the other. Unsecured, too, likely deserves a seat at the table, given the possibility of partial buybacks in the open market. We will answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. Let's get started. Next slide, please. Actually, I just went through the agenda, so if we could go to the next slide, please, thanks. So for all these reasons, multiple creditor groups have, have formed. You can see the company announced that they hired Sullivan and Cromwell and Evercore. Credit facility agent has hired Simpson Thatcher. An ad hoc group of senior lenders has hired Gibson Dunn and PJT Partners. And a crossholder group, which includes lenders, secured note holders, and unsecured note, note holders are working with Davis, Polk, and Houlihan Loki. These are, all, um, these are all advisor hires that our reporting team has, has been able to confirm. There also could be possibilities of Secure, secured only note holders, unsecured note holders uh, working together as well. Next slide, please. So this is 
a graph of a price chart and uh, some events uh, that led to price changes. Um, so this this graph overlays the nine and three eights, the U.S. secured notes to 2025, overlaid with the eight and a half unsecured notes to 2024. On February 10th, Diebold, its then CEO Jared Schmidt, stepped down, and the company announced Octavia Marquis as a new CEO. Later, on March 2nd, Diebold said it engaged in discussions with lenders under its credit agreement regarding an amendment to its total net leverage ratio covenant. As a result, the company stated that it would not be able to file its 10K in time since the process of obtaining an amendment would impact the company's disclosures. Moving to March 11th, the company filed its 10K, disclosing that, it's amend- that it meant that it amended its net leverage ratio under its credit agreement. The maximum net leverage ratio covenant increased from 5.75 times to 6.75 times for the second quarter of 2022, from 5.5 times to 6.5 times for this third quarter, from 5.25 times to 5.5 times for the fourth quarter, and it remained unchanged at 5.25 times thereafter. Debo noted that it needed additional financing, financial flexibility pending and anticipated refinancing later in 2022. This flexibility would be used for the normalization of working capital and the management of longer lead times in the global supply chain. Also, in its subsequent events section, they highlighted a going concern warning uh, based related to its Russian distribution subsidiaries and uncertainties in Ukraine. After the market closed on April 26, NCR released its first quarter of 2022 earnings, where they underperformed and they cut full-year guidance. Uh, They noted severe headwinds related to supply chain disruption, inflation, interest rates, the pandemic, the war, and these headwinds persisting going forward, which led to a big decline in Diebold's price, price as well. Prices took an even steeper hit on May 10th when Diebold reported its first quarter of 2022 earnings. The company reported weak numbers, lowered its 2022 guidance. They burned about $238 million of free cash flow. And during its earnings call, CFO Jeff Rutherford announced that the company was working with Evercore and Sullivan and Cromwell to assist in refinancing efforts. Next slide, please. Looking at Diebold's, Diebold's excuse me, financials, uh, net sales have been trending down and we're down 12.1% year-over-year for the first quarter. Furthermore, gross margins have been compressing. Gross margins for the service segment was 28.9% in the first quarter compared to 32.1% a year earlier. Gross margins for the product segment has decreased to 11% for the quarter compared to 24.1% a year ago. And consolidated gross margin decreased to 22.3% from 28.9%. When looking at adjusted EBITDA, it decreased 90.6% year over year in the first quarter to 9.4 million from 103 million. On his first quarter call um, and later at conferences held by JP Morgan and Barclays, Diebold addresses severe headwinds related to supply chain disruption and inflation. Relative to supply chain and length of supply chain, Diebold sources its electronic components from China, and as a result, it has been experiencing delays and experiencing excess costs to get the product into Germany or the United States. Then there are delays in moving the finished products from Germany into the United States. Historically, revenue recognition has been fewer than 90 days, but today it's over 200 days if the company's orders are coming from Germany. Diebold is simply not able to convert its its backlog into revenue at the rate it used to. Inflationary costs are, there are multiple, starting with the service segment. Uh, For service contracts, inflation is mainly labor, although there are spare parts and these spare parts are also experiencing inflation. Those contracts, those service contracts are they come up for annual renewals. The company notes that there's 
that they're either long-term or one-year contracts. And there's ability to reprice or increase prices based on inflation on an annual basis. It's a similar story with software, uh, mainly in professional services. Uh, Diebel sells licenses and maintenance to both retailers and banks. Again, it's a very, very labor-intensive um, segment, and they try to adjust their pricing uh, and the same, the same realm. On the other hand, inflation is affecting all facets of the supply chain, starting with inbound and outbound freight, especially in China to Germany or from Germany to the United States. It's much more expensive relative to container costs and transatlantic, transatlantic shipments. Additionally, components are more expensive. Uh, Diebel's competitor, NCR Corp, actually noted during their first Q2022 uh, earnings call that um, its chips required to manufacture its machines used to cost $41 in the second half of 2021, but now they go for almost around $2,900 in the open market. Just an example of how much inflation has affected their business. Coming back to Diebel, management noted that it made a decision in 2021 to not, when it started experiencing these sort of inflationary costs, it decided not to reprice its backlog. Hence, the first quarter of 2022 did not include any price increases. However, uh, Diebold announced that its backlog is at $1.2 billion right now, and the company is engaging in dialogue with customers to reprice its backlog and also engaging in repricing moving forward. However, it comes down to whether the company can fulfill, fulfill its orders. So coming back to the financial table, um, the company revises guidance for the full year. Uh, they decrease guidance when it comes to net sales, uh, adjusted EBITDA, and also free cash flow for the full year of 2022. Starting off with uh, net sales, um, to put that in perspective, the company, in order to meet its guidance of $3.8 billion, they would need to generate about $2.97 billion of net sales for the remaining third quarters of 2022 in order to hit that guidance. If we were, if, if we were to compare this to last year, the company generated about $2.96 billion for that comparable quarter, which is slightly less than uh, what they're anticipating this year. With respect to adjusted EBITDA, the company needs to generate about $326 million of EBITDA to achieve its guidance. Uh, looking back to last year, the company generated about 315 during that comparable period, which is about $10 million shy. And last, with regards to free cash flow, the company burned $238 million in the first quarter. So in order to achieve their break-even guidance for 2022, they would need to make up that, um, that cash burn. One thing that I would like to note is that CFO Rutherford mentioned that cash flow, that cash restructuring charges of $75 million over the course of the next three years had not been baked into this guidance. So that is something to keep in mind. Uh, management has mentioned repricing backlog and price increases moving forward as a means to combat inflation. However, judging from current circumstances, it seems that the aforementioned headwinds will persist and we'll keep margins compressed moving forward. Next slide, please. Moving to the company's capital structure, it consists of 2.385 billion of total debt, 225 million of cash, and 432 million of liquidity as of March 31st. Looking at secured debt, the credit facility consists of a $330 million revolver due July 2023, a $384 million dollar USD term loan B due November 2023, and a $371 million euro term loan B due November 2023 as well. Additionally, there are 700 million of the three and of not of the, excuse me, there are 700 million of the nine and three eighths secured notes and 389 million of the 9% euro secured notes, both due in July 2026. All the secured debt is PERI, according to the company. Unsecured debt primarily consists of 400 million of the 8.5 secured notes due 2024. Uh, this capital structure is available on Reorg. Uh, along, uh, at, also on the site, you could access the capital structure 
of all names in the high yield, high yield universe as well. Next slide, please. Moving on to uh, an overview of the organization chart. Uh, before I dive in, I wanted to note a few nuances. The first thing is that the credit facility and the notes are have similar security and guarantors. However, the credit facility consists, which consists of the revolving credit facility and the US and Euro terminal Bs, are borrowed under Diebold Nixdorf Incorporated, which is the parent company, but also a Switzerland domicile subsidiary named Diebold Self-Service Solutions Limited Liability Company. This entity is slowly a credit agreement borrower and does not provide support to the company's remaining debt. Uh, which, uh, if you think about it, means that the entity is able to draw on the revolver without and could actually strip away some value. Additionally, the credit facility and U.S. secure notes are guaranteed by Diable Nixdorf Dutch Holdings BV, which is the issuer of the euro notes. And on the other hand, the euro secure notes are guaranteed by the parent company, which is Diable Nixdorf Incorporated. Um, on the topic of unencumbered assets, approximately 70.7% of consolidated total current assets were held in non-guarantors as, as of March 31st. However, I want to preface this number since um, these figures for parent and guarantor versus non-guarantors are based on Exhibit 22.1 from the company's filings. Um, this is a list of the 8.5% um, no guarantors. And um, this list didn't exactly match up with uh, the list of all subsidiaries of the company, um, which led to, which I just wanted to preface. A guarantor, now moving on to security. So a guarantor is defined as each wholly owned domestic restricted subsidiary, other than typical excluded subsidiaries, which include domestic subsidiaries that are subsidiaries of foreign subs. So um, that was a definition that we used when we um, went through the list of subsidiaries to, to match up, uh, which would be considered a guarantor. And um, nonetheless, um, the fact stands that a large portion of the company's assets are actually held in non-guarantors. Also, you'll notice that the amount of parent and guarantors uh, total non-current assets is actually greater uh, than the consolidated amount uh, in the table shown on the presentation. And this is due to an intercompany loan between Diabol Nextdoor Dutch Holdings BV and Diabol Nextdoor Holdings Germany GmbH, uh, which I will dive further into later. Uh, I wanted to shed some light on the current assets because the company has been discussing a, re a replacement ABL facility, uh, which Peter will touch on more later in, later down in the presentation. And last, to look at collateral, um, the discussion between real assets and equity pledges. Uh, collateral for the secured debt includes 100% equity of material, domestic subs, um, 65 equity of voting securities of foreign subsidiaries, directly owned by loan parties, uh, other than um, three uh, foreign subs, which I will note in the next slide, which are 100% equity pledged. And, um, and then there are real property pledges as collateral in excess of 10 million. Next slide, please. This is a simplified organization chart. Um, just starting off by looking at where all the debt is outstanding. Um, the credit facility, which consists of the revolver and the, the U.S. and Euro term loan Bs, as I mentioned before, are co-barred at the parent company and also this subsidiary in Switzerland, um, Diabol Self-Service Solutions Limited Liability Company. Uh, additionally, the Euro notes are issued out from this subsidiary in the Netherlands, the uh, Diabol next door of Dutch Holdings BV. And the remaining, the remaining secured U.S. notes and the unsecured notes are issued at the parent company. Next slide, please. 
Uh, touching on the intercompany loan, so the net proceeds of 350 million euros of the secure notes were lent to Diebold Nixdorf Holdings Company GBH from Diebold Nixdorf Dutch Holding BV as an as an intercompany loan. So there is a loan at the uh, at there is a loan receivable at Diebold Nixdorf Dutch Holdings right now, and there is a um, loan liability at Diebold Nixdorf Holdings Germany GmbH. Uh, this is what I was talking about earlier. How there is uh, discrepancies in um, total assets uh, between the parent and guarantor and the non-guarantors. Um, however, uh, and more on that, based on the 10K as of March 31st, the parent company and the guarantor subsidiaries had uh, 194 million of total current assets and uh, 610 non-current assets uh, with non-guarantor subsidiaries. Next slide, please. This breaks down the, the co-borrower of the credit facility. Um, this just shows where it's located in the organization chart. It is, a, um, it is held through the Diable Nix or Holdings BV, um, which is essentially a holding company for a lot of these assets. Um, and um, one thing, a nuance that I wanted to mention is the term loan actually, the term loans, both the US and the Euro, uh, trade seven points higher than secure notes. And they are supposed to be parry, but that, that discrepancy in pricing uh, leads me to believe that there is additional value associated to this Diebold Self-Service Solutions LLC uh, entity. Next slide, please. Now looking at Diebold Nixdorf Holdings Germany, GmbH. After analyzing the organization chart, we noted that all German subsidiaries are owned through Diebold through this entity. Um, Diebold's main facilities for both retail products and high-end ATMs are, in fact, in Germany. Uh, they do have a lot in Ohio. Uh, they do have a plant in Ohio. Also, a plant in Brazil for Brazilian for the Brazilian market, and then they have joint ventures uh, where they are minority interest holders in a plant in China where they make more of their lower end ATMs. However, uh, as of December thirty first, twenty twenty one, out of its one hundred thirty eight million of property, plant, and equipment, uh, nine hundred uh, excuse me. 97 million were located in Germany, 19 million were located in the United States, and the remaining 22 million were located in other international um, locations. Um, as a result, I wanted to highlight this portion of where a lot of their value resides. Uh, this, other than that, the full organization chart could be found at Reorg. Uh, where we also provide organization charts for numerous companies uh, throughout the whole high-yield universe as well. Uh, and I'll pass it off to Peter, which will uh, look into the debt capacity and other discussions. Great. Uh, thanks, Simran. Um, next slide, please. Um, so Simran and I have been on a, a number of calls uh, since uh, Diebold uh, announced their earnings, and a lot of questions have focused on what the company can do under its capital structure, uh, to either increase liquidity, reduce leverage, or some kind of balance sheet um, improvement transactions. The, the biggest problem with any of these, with, with the company pursuing any of, of its options, and, and the options are limited, um, is that the 6.75 times total leverage uh, financial maintenance covenant under the revolver um, currently only allows the company to uh, incur another $70 million of total debt uh, before it would breach that covenant. Um, and the company has about a $10 million EBITDA cushion um, below which it would, it would also breach the covenant without incurring any other debt. So um, in the context of any uh, balance sheet improvement uh, scenario, it's important to realize that you know, even if the company has uh, debt capacity to incur debt uh, secured by unencumbered assets, even if it could transfer uh, assets to an unrestricted subsidiary, 
that's all going to implicate uh, its ability to, to meet the financial maintenance covenant. Um, obviously, any debt incurred, um, whether it be an ABL facility, debted non-guarantors, um, unsecured or first lien debt, that's all going to increase its leverage. Um, and to the extent the company transfers EBITDA producing assets to an unrestricted subsidiary, um, its EBITDA under its credit agreement will be correspondingly reduced. So, um, so just it's 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 important to keep that in mind when discussing any of its options because you know even if it can uh, do any of these transactions without getting consent from you know note holders or term loan lenders, it's almost certainly going to need to involve the revolving lenders to either loosen or waive the maintenance covenant um, if it does pursue any type of transaction. Uh, uh, next slide, please. Um, so one question that is that has come up uh, more than any other um, is whether the company can use its um, significant uh, unencumbered assets to uh, you know to pledge to the to the term loan and revolving lenders to possibly do an amend and extend um, without having to give uh, those additional liens to the 2025 secure notes. Um, we have not reviewed the intercreditor agreement, given the company has not filed it publicly. Um, but assuming it's it's a uh, you know a standard intercredit agreement, they would not be allowed to do that because the intercredit agreement will provide that um, to the extent the term loan lenders and revolving lenders get the benefit of any additional collateral, um, that collateral will have to be shared with the 2025 secured note holders. So yes, they have uh, you know massive amounts of unencumbered assets that they could use for. Um, you know, to, to pledge for an amend and extend uh, transaction, but it's not really gonna do them that much good without having to uh, give those liens to the 2025 note holders as well. And uh, if it did that, it kind of, you know, nothing is improved. It's just uh, given more collateral to all of its lenders. Um, in addition to that, if the company, let's just say that the company could uh, pledge the unencumbered assets just for the term loan revolving lenders, uh, get an amend and extend, um, yes, it would buy itself a little maturity runway, uh, but given it has, um, you know, another significant maturity wall in 2024 and another significant maturity wall in 2025, um, any amended extend is almost certainly going to have um, a springing maturity that kind of springs before um, either or both of the 2024 and 2025 notes. So, um, you know, even in the best light, if you know, uh, and if if you read the provisions as favorably as possible to Diebold, um, providing additional collateral to get an extension of maturities in the credit agreement is not really going to do all that much, given that they won't be able to extend a maturity more than a year, given you know they have they have significant maturities the year after and the year after that. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so this is the company's flexibility under its credit agreement. We, we're, you know, I'm focusing on the credit agreement because um, it is uh, by far the most restrictive debt document in its structure. The 2025 uh, secured notes and 2024 unsecured notes provide the company with a lot more flexibility. Uh, one question we have gotten is whether the company could essentially replace its credit agreement uh, using secured capacity under its notes. It could do that. Um, it probably would you know, it will lose uh, liquidity from not having a revolver. But, you know, if its uh, flexibility is governed by the notes, it would open up, um, you know, a significant amount of additional flexibility. But while the credit agreement is outstanding, um, as you can see, the company has $100 million of secured uh, first lien debt capacity remaining and $100 million of structurally senior debt. Um, that's where it can use its... Um, its uh, unencumbered assets to, uh, to secure debt. But remember, the company can only incur $70 million of total debt um, before it breaches the covenant. So um, even though the credit agreement provides you know, fairly minimal additional parry and structurally senior debt capacity, even that minimal flexibility is unattainable right now, given the restrictions imposed by, uh, by the maintenance covenant. Uh, the company also has you know, at, at least $289 million of, of capacity to transfer assets to an unrestricted subsidiary. Um, again, it has, you know, it has $259 million under a, a general investments basket, and it has at least $30 million under a retained ECF-based uh, builder basket. Uh, the company does not need to meet a leverage or a interest coverage test to access that. Um, to the extent it's retained ECF since uh, closing of its credit facility has been positive, it will have additional capacity but again, this is almost besides the point, given uh, if it transferred $289 million of assets, 
um, its EBITDA would go down by presumably far more than $10 million cushion it has. Um, and then it would, it would again find itself in breach of the maintenance covenant. So um, pretty much all of its flexibility under its credit agreement, um, and again, it's minimal, um, is really only um, practically accessible if the revolving lenders were to waive or, um, or to waive the maintenance covenant or provide a covenant holiday. Um, and as Simran mentioned, the company already received covenant relief in February. So um, it's hard to believe that the revolving lenders would, again, four months later, be willing to, um, to loosen the maintenance covenant again. But again, um, disregarding the maintenance covenant for a second, uh, it, it, the company does have 100 million of first lien capacity, which given where it's debt is trading, that doesn't really seem practical. The $100 million is structurally senior debt capacity. That could prove valuable because you know that is uh, on unencumbered assets. Um, and then the transfers unrestricted subs could buy it some additional flexibility because the unrestricted subsidiaries can take the $289 million of uh, value transferred and uh, raise debt and use it to uh, purchase the company's debt in the open market or you know some kind of uh, balance sheet improvement transaction. Um, one last thing that is not on this slide, actually it's on the next slide. So uh, next slide, please. Um, in addition to uh, transfers to unrestricted subs and, um, and structurally senior debt, the company could uh, purchase its 2024 notes in the open market. Um, this doesn't really help to uh, expand the maturity runway. Um, it doesn't really help to kind of do anything with its, with its uh, upcoming maturities. But um, under the credit agreement, the company has at least $130 million of prepayment capacity, which it can use to purchase the notes in the open market. The $130 million is the amount of cash it can spend, not the face value of notes it can purchase. So uh, given the notes are trading you know, in the 50s, $130 million of capacity, um, obviously the, the prices would change if it started using all of that, but you know, that could purchase two to $260 million of the $400 million outstanding of 2024 notes. Uh, if the company would do that, you know, its pro forma leverage would obviously uh, improve, um, probably significantly so, and that could make a, uh, a refinancing of the entire structure maybe a little more palatable for lenders. Uh, maybe lenders would be willing to, you know, extend maturities um, if the company were able to reduce um, reduce that uh, reduce their leverage. Uh, importantly, while the um, transfers unrestricted subs and structurally senior debt would uh, implicate the financial maintenance covenant, uh, open market purchases at below par prices of the 2024 unsecured notes is actually uh, the one transaction the company uh, could do that could buy it a little more cushion under the maintenance covenant, given it'd be buying the notes um, at below par. So $1 uh, expenditure uh, gets you let, yeah, obviously more than $1 of debt reduction. So that's another thing to consider. I don't think the company has actually said that they are even considering buying the 2024 notes in the open market, but um, it's, it makes sense. And it, you know, given where the debt is trading, it, it could help uh, the company's situation. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so the next two slides just uh, kind of show what the flexibilities are under the 2025 secured notes and uh, 2024 unsecured notes, uh, different, different charts, different colors, but uh, kind of they say the same thing. Um, you can see under the 2025 secured notes, the company has currently $702 million of additional first lien capacity compared to the $100 million under the credit agreement. Um, that could also be used to, uh, it could be used by its non-guarantor restricted subs to incur um, a lot of structurally senior debt secured by their assets. Um, here, we're just trying to show the maximum parry capacity, but um, under the notes, the company also has a lot more flexibility for structurally senior debt. So it has, um, it could use $702 million uh, from the credit facilities basket um, and then it has an additional 155 million of structurally senior debt capacity. So um, it is significant under the 2025 secure notes. Um, it also has at least 465 million of transfer capacity. Um, while there is no maintenance covenant under the secure notes, um, of course, while the credit agreement is outstanding, it will still need to um, comply with that regardless of what, uh, of what the secure notes uh, permit. Next slide, please. Uh, the 2024 notes is, uh, you know, even expands their capacity even further. Um, and here, uh, because they're unsecured, the, the, the notes don't really care what priority uh, lien would provide. It just provides secured or unsecured capacity. Um, under the 2024 notes, the company has uh, a little over 1.2 billion of secured capacity. Um, again, that could also be used by uh, non-guarantor restricted subs. Uh, has another 150 million of structurally senior debt capacity. 
and it could transfer $450 million of assets to, uh, to unrestricted subs. So again, a lot more flexibility, uh, but while the credit agreement is outstanding, it, it's, uh, it, it's not really worth getting more into it just because uh, all of these capacities are, are far out of reach under the credit agreement. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and so this is the, this is the last slide on, uh, for, for me. Um, so the company has uh, said explicitly that they are looking to, uh, that they could possibly look to raise an ABL facility and replace the revolver. Uh, the most immediate impact of that would be it would get rid of the total leverage maintenance covenant. Um, assuming it's a typical ABL facility, it would still have a one-time fixed charge coverage ratio uh, maintenance covenant, but that would only be in effect if availability under the, the facility dropped below a, a specified point. Um, even if that happened, a one-time fixed charge coverage ratio uh, presumably is a lot easier for the company to meet than the total leverage test. So um, instantly, it would it would it would buy its you know it would open up capacity under the credit agreement that it currently does not have, uh, given the, the the total leverage maintenance covenant, which is in effect at all times. In terms of what form and the company's ability to uh, incur the ABL facility. Um, all of the, uh, the, the credit agreement, the secured notes and the unsecured notes all provide the company with about 100 to $200 million of capacity to enter into securitization financings. Um, those are kind of more formal uh, receivables financing programs. And it did not sound from at least what management said that that is what the company was going to do. It sounded like it was more you know, a, 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 a purely borrowing-based facility secured by the company's current assets. Um, if that is the case, um, the problem with that is um, if the if Diebold or a subsidiary guarantor were to incur the ABL facility, it would subordinate uh, lenders and secured note holders liens on um, Diebold and the subsidiary guarantor's uh, current assets. So in order to do that, the company would need majority consent under the credit agreement and 66 and two thirds percent uh, consent under the, the secured note. So it is possible, and uh, Diamond Sports did it uh, a few months ago. They they had to get 50% uh, consent from lenders, 66 and two thirds from ho note holders. They were able to do it. Uh, it's just a logistically a little more challenging. However, um, if the company were to enter into the ABL facility secured by the non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries' current assets, um, and as Simran said, you know about 71% of the consolidated current assets sit in non-guarantor restricted subs. Um, there would be no need to get um, lien subordination amendments because it, it would uh, the company would just need to rely on its ability to incur debt at uh, non-guarantor restricted subs. If you remember under the credit agreement, it's it's very limited. It's 100 million, um, but it, it, they might have an easier time getting majority consent for that uh, than any other kind of transaction. Uh, they would not need to get consent under the secured notes or the unsecured notes be, um, unless the, the facility was more than about $850 million, uh, because that is what is permitted to be incurred under the notes by non-guarantor restricted subs. So um, to the extent the company pursued an ABL facility to non-guarantor restricted subs, it would be a lot easier. Um, and again, it would, it would instantly open up additional flexibility given no further maintenance covenant under the credit agreement. Um, so that is... That's my capital structure review. Thanks, Peter. Let's switch over to questions. As a reminder, uh, you can use the Q&A widget on the bottom of your screen to submit questions and we'll try and get to them. So let's give a couple of seconds for people to submit a question. So I'll start, there's a question on unbillable inflation. Can you explain unbillable inflation as discussed on the earnings call? Is this temporary and how can it restore margins? So this is a concept that the company introduced, uh, looking back at the transcripts late last year in the third quarter, um, they talk about long-term long -term contracts. Most of, their, uh, most of their revenue comes from long-term contracts. They said um, over a year and mention then this unbillable inflation concept, which seems like uh, they would have to, there's certain inflation that is in contracts, and then there's other inflation that they experienced, which they weren't anticipating, which they have to go back on a customer by customer basis, or a large price increases in order to get that inflation back. Companies said last year that there's $50 million in unbillable inflation, and that related to product costs and logistics. 
the they expected actually the uh, that fifty million dollars to continue in the first quarter, even though in the third quarter the company said that it introduced price increases on uh, a number of their a number of their products. So it seems like either uh, they weren't successful in getting um, that getting those price increases through, or it takes more than a couple of quarters to, to pass them through. It's, it's unclear. They did say that uh, inflation would extend to, uh, to labor costs, as uh, most companies are experiencing now. Uh, in describing it in the, the unbillable inflation in the first quarter, the company said that uh, they, they experienced 10% total inflation, but only expected 5% uh, inflation heading into the quarter. So we sort of take that to mean that uh, that that 5% is the unbillable inflation. Uh, that, that's at least how I interpret it. And then they're going to spend the rest of the year trying to recover uh, that, uh, that, that additional 5% margin uh, destruction from, uh, from that unbillable inflation in the quarter. Let's move on to a uh, another one. Um, uh, Simran, this this looks like for you. How much do non guarantors contribute to consolidated financials? Yeah. So, um, with respect to that, to be most accurate as I can be, I could refer to the offering memorandum for the secured notes. Uh, this actually dates back to twenty twenty. Um, on an LTM basis of March 30, 31st, 2020. Um, essentially, non-guarantor subsidiaries represented about 80% of the company's revenue and about 94% of adjusted EBITDA. Uh, of course, this is sort of dated. And um, as I preface, um, the in the 10K, they do give a breakdown of non-guarantors, but as I preface in the presentation, um, the the list don't exactly uh, add up. So this is, um, I'd say about 80% of revenue, 94% of adjusted EBITDA is a, is a proxy to go off of. So um, a major chunk is coming from non-guarantors. Thanks, Simran. Uh, Peter, could the company do a CERTA style super priority up to your exchange? Um, yeah, so um, when I mentioned uh, in the, with the ABL facility, that, that was uh, a partial lien subordination, but a CERTA transaction is you know, just a full lien subordination transaction. So um, yes, they could do it, uh, but again, it would require majority consent under the credit agreement and uh, 66 and two thirds percent um, consent under the secured note. So feasible, but logistically more challenging than CERTA. Uh, which only had bank debt, so only needed to get uh, majority consent under uh, their their bank debt. So, but yes, possible. Thanks. And and here's one um, could be for both of you guys. Uh, whoever wants to jump in, it uh, it talks about the existing secured debt, why it's not guaranteed um, for for tax reasons. Do you think that in order to overcome this issue, any incremental debt now secured by foreign assets? current and non-current will be sitting directly at foreign entity level. Which entities do you think could be used as issuers? Well, I, I can start it, but Simran, please feel free to interrupt. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, um, so when the agreement was entered into there, there had been kind of deemed dividend tax rules, uh, which is why there was no credit support from foreign subsidiaries. Um, however, in 2000, I believe it was 2018, um, when the company actually also needed covenant relief, um, they had entered into an amendment with uh, the revolving lenders, and they had to comply with a number of conditions, um, you know, most of them having to do with not accessing certain negative covenant baskets. But um, one of the conditions was, was that they had to use a reasonably commer commercially reasonable efforts to get uh, guarantees from their foreign subsidiaries and to get pledges of their foreign assets. So, um, so yes, there are no guarantees and pledges by the foreign entities, but um, it's, not that, it's not like it's illegal. Um, at worst, it is a tax liability. Um, and my understanding is actually all of those tax reasons um, and, and the rules uh, underlying them have kind of gone away. So I'm not actually even sure if there are any tax, tax reasons anymore. Um, generally, in the, in the leveraged loan market, uh, U.S. debt continues only to be secured and guaranteed by U.S. entities but I don't think they're deemed dividend rules anymore. So uh, point being, 
Uh, not only have lenders thought about this before when they did that uh, covenant relief amendment in 2018, but um, for sure, I think, um, you know, yes, it would be easier just to kind of get um, new debt at foreign subs, but um, I don't think that getting uh, foreign pledges and foreign uh, guarantees of the U.S. debt um, would would be, uh, you know, would be a roadblock anymore. And I think, you know, given the company has such limited options, I'm sure lenders could push for that and the company would be able to do it. Um, as for what entities would incur it in a foreign foreign uh, in the foreign group, um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure it actually matters as long as you get guarantees from the rest of the foreign group. Thanks. And uh, let me combine a couple. Uh, there's questions on uh, guidance, whether it's attainable and how much incremental liquidity do you think the company needs? I think both of these are are related. I'll start, um, Simran, if you want to jump in after and just talk about uh, the, the guidance. Um, I think part of the, the guidance, whether it's attainable, has to do with that unbillable inflation that the company uh, talked about. It does appear that they, while they put in price increases late last year for the product, that uh, they were not able to, to achieve those or there's a delay. And then the company talked about multi-year contracts as well. So it seems to take a lot of time. And they also mentioned that the, the market's still uh, competitive, even though costs are going up, uh, pricing is uh, competitive for them. So if the guidance relates, if the guidance assumes that they could get back all that inflation, which they said was uh, hit margins by uh, 5% in the first quarter, plus the carry on from the prior year, um, if they're unable to get that, and they're guiding to break even, uh, by assuming that they get it, it seems like they'll burn cash uh, this year. Uh, plus, uh, Simran, uh, you've done some work on the restructuring as well, which probably indicates that even if they hit their guidance, they're still going to be burning uh, some some cash, right? Yeah. So, um, looking at the the new restructuring that they implemented and during the the Q1 release, uh, they're hoping to expect savings of more than 150 million over the next 12 to 18 months. And um, the CFO had actually noted that the, the, cash, the cash outflow for that program would be uh, around 75 million. And that was not baked into the guidance. Uh, so that is definitely, um, if you're looking at break even for this year, uh, the, the restructuring is not implemented in there. So that could be negative. And another point I would like to hit on is, um, it comes down to um, converting the backlog into actual revenue. I know um, I touched on how lead times have gone from about 90 days to about they're around 200 now. So uh, even if they could, um, you know, reprice these contracts, it's above fulfilling them. And um, it'll come, it'll come down to if they're able to manage their operations and their facilities where they're able to really um, get this capacity and fulfill all this capacity. And I'd add, it's 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 as much a maturity issue as it is liquidity, right? It's um, even if they were able to muddle along and generate a little bit of cash, they still have maturities in 2023, 2024, and 2025 with the unsecured notes sandwiched in between, making it pretty complicated maturity wall to uh, to overcome. So I think both of those are an issue. Thanks. Good question. Um, the Peter, uh, one for you. Can you please summarize again the key differences, uh, for example, covenants, security packages between secure notes and the term loan, which is the more attractive instrument? I don't know if you can answer the attractive part uh, of it, but if you could just summarize the differences. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I actually think Simran did a really good job of that. I think that the biggest difference between um, the, the secure notes and, and the credit agreement is just the... Um, that uh, Simran, what's the name of the guy? The, the self-serve, uh, the self-service. Self-service uh, solutions, LLC, yeah. Right, so that, that's the only uh, additional entity that uh, provides credit support in the, under the credit agreement uh, versus the notes, everything else is the same. Um, so, but, but as Simran said, also the, the, the credit agreement is trading, uh, you know, uh, higher than the, than the notes. And um, it, the, the possible reason is because of that one additional entity providing credit support under the credit agreement. Um, but, but that's really the, the only difference the, the, the actual collateral is all the same and the rest of the entities providing credit support are the same. Um, 
it, I, I'm not sure if the if the question literally meant go over the difference in the covenants, but just uh, a quick summary is is uh, the credit agreement is much more restrictive uh, for all all types of secure debt and transfers. Um, the 2025 notes are a lot more flexible, provide a lot more flexibility than the credit agreement, and the 2024 unsecured notes provide uh, even more flexibility. But um, I'm happy if the question meant literal uh, difference. I'm happy to get into that um, uh, one on one. <laughs> and then uh, just just sticking on uh, um, the covenants and the loans, any MFM protection for term lenders? Oh yeah, um, let me uh, just check. Uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, that's actually that's a good point. Um, the there, there is fifty uh, initial lenders have fifty basis points of MFN protection uh, with no sunset. So what that means is if the company were to incur additional first lien debt that was priced more than fifty basis points higher than the term loans, the term loan uh, interest would be uh, increased such that there's not more than a fifty basis point difference. So um, and that's important here because um, you know any additional first lien debt that the company were to incur. Um, is almost certainly going to be a lot higher than the pricing under the, the existing term loan. So um, it, it probably wouldn't even be feasible for the company to incur additional term loans. Now, MFN protection does not apply to first lien notes. So um, if the company were, were to incur additional first lien debt, I would be uh, almost stunned if it, if it uh, took the form of bank debt. Uh, it would almost certainly be uh, uh, secured bonds just to get around the uh, MFN protection. Thanks. And and then in terms of break, in terms of not the full capital structure, global sort of capital structure fix, just getting to the 2024, 2025 maturities, is there a way you see that the company could address, I, I guess this question uh, is asking, is there a way for the company to address the credit facility and the unsecured notes uh, without addressing and wait for maybe an improvement for the, uh, the for until 2024, 2025 to address the, the, uh, the notes. So like, uh, um, kind of ex getting, extending maturities now for all of the debt. Uh, it seems like just partial, the debt, a part, a part of the debt they're, they're asking. So, um, you know, how can you, um, can you get lender concessions to push the maturity wall back to 2024 or 2025 rather than 2023, which I assume also means addressing the unsecured notes, but not addressing the secured notes, uh, which mature in 2025 yet. Well, right. So, um, I mean, I think um, if, if that's the plan, I mean, I, I do think uh, purchasing the unsecured notes in the open market uh, would be a good idea because you then, uh, you know, you, you reduce overall leverage to the point where uh, potentially the, the rest of the capital structure can be extended, um, you know, just given, uh, you know, significantly reduced leverage. So, you know, if you, if you use the 130 million of open market purchase capacity, um, then maybe the term loan lenders and revolver would be willing to extend the maturity beyond the 2024 notes, given there'd be a lot less outstanding. Um, you still obviously could not extend it past the 2025 notes, but but if you were able to extend it past the 2024, the the, the much reduced 2024 unsecured notes, then yeah, you have bought yourself two years uh, to deal with the rest of it. Um, it's not it's not a great solution because uh, you know you still are going to have to deal with whatever remains outstanding on the 2024 notes. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's possible that, that that could happen. Great. And then we'll end on one more asking you to clarify the intercreditor restrictions uh, on using unencumbered assets as collateral. Yeah. So um, again, I have not looked at the intercreditor agreement. Um, it has not been publicly filed. But uh, what what typically uh, what what is typical in an intercreditor agreement is it says. Uh, you know, all of the first lien creditors who are party to the agreement, in, in this case, it would be the uh, term loan lenders, revolving lenders, and secured note holders. Um, it says that, you know, they have uh, parry claims on all of the collateral. And to the extent additional collateral is given to one group of the first lien creditors, they, uh, the, other, the other group or all the other groups need to be given uh, the same lien on those on uh, the new collateral. So so point is, um, you know, if the company wanted to uh, just take care of their credit agreement first, um, they couldn't just offer them additional collateral to uh, of the unencumbered assets to extend the maturity because they would also need to provide those liens for the secure note holders. Assuming the intercredit agreement is is a standard one, obviously it's it's possible it's not, but um, 
you know, these documents are, are, are pretty restrictive. So I can't imagine they, the intercreditor would give the company any more flexibility than uh, what is typical. So, so the only thing I meant was that the company cannot kind of benefit, uh, you know, its nearest term secured debt with additional liens on unencumbered assets without providing those to um, the rest of its first lien debt as well. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Simran. That's all the questions we have time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. If you are already a Reorg subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to customersuccess@reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page within 48 hours. A big thanks to everyone who joined us today, as well as our panelists, Simran and Peter. Thank you, and have a good day. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.